Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. From Luke 5, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at a tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 6, verses 12 to 16. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Do you pray with me? God, we're grateful for your presence in our midst, wherever we may be, around the city, around the country, around the world. We know that your spirit is alive and moving, and we're grateful. And God, we pray that you would empower Matthew this morning to bring your word to us, empower us to hear not just with our ears, but with our hearts, and from our hearts to our actions to be obedient in what you're calling us to do. So we offer this time to you, God. We offer our hearts to you, and we pray for Matthew as he comes to bring us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good uh, morning, 
uh, Christ City family, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I'm glad that I'm here this morning. Uh, it's been a full week and a full weekend, and today is a full day in the life of our church and in our city. Like so many of you, I've been tuned in to the events of the week, to the protests and the calls for justice. And like so many of you, I've been a participant in those calls and in those actions. I know this week has been a heavy one, but I also know that it's been a hopeful one. I've been comforted by the psalmist who writes in Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are on the just and his ears are attentive to their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those seeking justice cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. In the midst of the anger and the angst, I've seen the beauty of God's image bearers coming through. On Tuesday, Lisa and I, along with our housemate Laura, we stood in line for five hours waiting to cast a vote in Tuesday's election. We stood in a line that stretched seven blocks as we and other DC residents waited to make our voices heard in the midst of pandemics and protests to say that we as a community and a nation can do better. And we waited so that we might steward our citizenship on behalf of the welfare and well-being of our neighborhoods and our neighbors. And as we waited together, masks on, socially distant, the surrounding neighbors, they began to come out and they came to care for us as we waited. They, they brought us water and sodas and throughout the evening, which began to stretch towards midnight, they brought us food and snacks and they said to us, we know that you've been here a long time and that you haven't had dinner. And they fed us from what they had. And in that moment, I was reminded again that the eyes of the Lord are on the just and his ears are attentive to their cry. The next day, Lisa and I, along with Nikki and other Christ City members and elders, we joined with other pastors from around the city and convened in the shadow of St. John's Church in Lafayette Square. And amidst the protests and the chants, we prayed together. We prayed for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We prayed that God would dismantle white supremacy and break the yoke of racial oppression that has a stranglehold in this country. And we prayed that the Spirit would dismantle whatever needs undoing so that the Spirit might remantle in such a way as to more faithfully reflect God's kingdom of righteousness and justice and love and mercy and peace. And we prayed that the lives lost of Ahmaud Arbery Brianna Taylor and George Floyd and so many others that they would not have been in vain. We prayed that the rallies and the protests and the prayers would begin the tipping point for change. And we clung ferociously to God's promise that those seeking justice cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them. And then on Friday, I was able to join with Pastor William Lamar of the historic Metropolitan AME Church here in D.C. And together we, along with the Washington Interfaith Network and a number of other churches from across our city, we gathered to publicly demand that the redevelopment of Reservation 13, the 250-acre parcel of land that is located just blocks from where I'm standing, the site of the now-shuttered D.C. Gen Family Homeless Shelter, that that site be developed to include affordable housing as well as space for community-owned business and institutions dedicated to the flourishing of people, not just profit margins. And we pray that this corner of D.C. would be a, a beacon that declared that we are a city for all those who wish to live here, not only for those who can afford to live here, 
We pray that this corner of D.C. would be a, a step towards reversing the trend of African Americans being forced from this city because of the economics and gentrification. Together as a, as a people of faith, as those committed to the God who will one day renew all things, including cities, we recommitted ourselves to the task of being the church, of being a sign and foretaste and instrument of God's end-breaking kingdom. I've been comforted this week in the streets and in the prayer meetings by Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Those seeking justice cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. As we continue to move through this day and the days ahead, church, do not grow weary. Let us continue to pursue the things of God. Let us be salt and light, prophets, preachers, and protesters, knowing that God sees us and hears us. And this work that we are doing together is rooted in a holy and righteous and just God who, according to his word, hears us and will deliver us. This morning, we begin a new sermon series that we are calling The Welcoming Kingdom. We, uh, we've anticipated this series for months because we believe that this will be a defining series for our church this year. And we want to do, what we want to do over these next several weeks is to better understand the expansive nature of God's kingdom and consider how this expansive quality of the kingdom ought inform how we behave as a local church. We want to use this series to set our church's orientation and posture towards the radical welcome and inclusion of God's kingdom. Over the weeks, we will consider Jesus' approach to inclusion. We will explore how Jesus embraced those from different ethnic and political backgrounds. We'll look at what it means to have a community where there is difference and disagreement, even theological disagreement. And we will look at how Jesus and Jesus' earliest followers embraced those that were historically understood as being outside of the community of faith. Now, I suspect there will be moments in this series that will be challenging for all of us as we uh, together examine the scriptures and the biblical theme of God's expanding kingdom. And I hope that as we look at Jesus' teaching and his living, that we are faced with our own idols of bias and comfort, and I pray that when so faced, we will look to Jesus, that we will trust Jesus and follow Jesus by faith into his ever-expanding and welcoming kingdom. As we begin this series, I want us to look quickly at two scenes from Jesus' life. First, a time when he was teaching in the synagogue in Galilee, and then I want us to quickly look at Jesus' calling of his first disciples. Um, I want us to look at these scenes because they give us a, a glimpse into how Jesus understood the kingdom through the lens of Jesus' teachings and through his living. The passage that Lisa read was Luke 5 and 6. And in those chapters, Luke is chronicling the calling of Jesus' first disciples. But, but just prior to that, in Luke 4, Jesus is in a synagogue in Nazareth, where he's from. And while there, he begins to preach. Luke 4 is the first sermon of Jesus that we have recorded. And in this sermon, he quotes the, that famous passage out of Isaiah 61, uh, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And after he preaches, uh, after he preaches to the crowd, and, uh, the crowd begins, they, they kind of begin to pester him a bit. They begin making demands of Jesus. 
They are awed by his teaching, and it seems to be that they want him to perform a miracle. And Jesus chastises them, and he responds with what can seem like a cryptic response that includes some random Old Testament references. Jesus says in Luke 4, 24, he says this, "Um, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. And yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What Jesus is doing in referencing two stories of Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now, the prophets aren't actually the point of what Jesus was saying. It's actually the other people in the story, the widow in Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. In the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, in chapter 17, there's this beautiful story about the prophet Elijah and a widow that he meets. The story is actually a story that prompted Lisa and I to give our middle son, Elias, his name. Because in this story, the prophet displays care and affection for the widow who has lost everything. Elijah enters her pain. He weeps with those who weep. Our middle son, in ways that he may not even be aware of, he lives into his namesake. He's incredibly tender and perceptive with an emotional intelligence far beyond his years. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah is following the instructions of the Lord and he goes up to an area far north of Israel in a region called Sidon. When he arrives, he finds a widow woman with a young son and he asks her for care and for food and for drink. And although she's very poor, she cares for him. But during the time that Elijah is staying with the widow and her son, the son dies. And the son is all the widow has in the world and she's heartbroken and she weeps and she weeps to Elijah and Elijah weeps as well. And in the sorrow and in the weeping, the prophet asks God to revive her son. The son comes back to life. It's an amazing story of the faith of the woman and the power of God at work through the prophet Elijah. But the twist in the story and the point that Jesus is making is that the woman who's at the center of the story is not from Israel. The woman who receives the blessing from God and whose faith is ultimately celebrated is from a foreign land and from a despised people. And yet she's the one to whom the prophet went as God directed. And she is the one for whom God performed the miracle. The second story that Jesus is referencing has a similar theme. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. And this too is a story of healing and restoration. The prophet in this story is Elisha. Different prophet, similar name. Don't let the names confuse you. Keep up. Elisha was the prophet protege of Elijah. The second Kings, in 2 Kings, it chronicles much of Elisha's life and work. In this story, it isn't the prophet going out to one in need as much of the story may be. But rather, it is one in, uh, where one needs to come to Elijah and asks for help. The one needing help is a man named Naaman. Naaman is a general in the Syrian army. And the Assyrians, they rule over Israel for nearly 200 years before being conquered by the Babylonians. And what that means is Naaman is a general in the occupying, oppressing empire. He's an enemy to Israel. 
However, though he has power and though he has might and privilege, he has a problem that he cannot solve or cure on his own. Naaman has leprosy. He has a disease that is causing his body to rot. And Naaman gets advice that he's to seek help from Elisha, who tells Naaman that he needs to bathe in the Jordan River. Initially, Naaman refuses because the Jordan is not a clean river. It's muddy, uh, and to bathe in the river would be viewed as below Naaman. Nevertheless, he relents. He bathes in the river and is healed completely. Naaman returns to his post, and yet he's a changed man. He's a man who now worships the God of Elisha and the God of Israel. The one who was resistant to God and actively oppressed God's people is heralded as a champion of the faith. There are differences in these two stories that Jesus is referencing. One is a story of a man, another is of a woman. One is a story of a prophet that seeks out the person as Elijah sought out the widow, and the other has the prophet being sought out, as is in the case of Naaman. However, in both cases, they're Gentiles and they're foreigners. They're enemies of those who were believed to be born uh, uh, with the blessing of God. They were outside the covenant of God, yet they are the ones who received the blessing, the benefit and embrace of God. Neither of them were required to become Jewish. They didn't have to change their cultural identities because uh, uh, these aren't the things that rescued them, but rather it was faith in the one who saves. The, the widow displayed faith in the God of Elijah. Na- Naaman displayed faith in the God of Elisha, and that faith rescued them, though outsiders. They found adoption into the family of God. Now, back to Nazareth. It was actually at this point that the crowd in the synagogue, they begin to turn violent. Luke 4, 28 through 30 says, All the people in the synagogue, they were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But he, Jesus, walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Perhaps a better rendering of this text would be, as they were hearing these things, they were filled with rage. The crowd began to rage on Jesus because the story didn't follow the plumb line of Jewish preference. It didn't end with the evildoers getting their just desserts. Instead, it ended with the outsiders getting the blessing, with the oppressors finding refuge. It didn't end with Jesus, their native son, telling a good Nazareth story, celebrating all things Bethlehem. Jesus points out that the kingdom includes folks that those gathered in the synagogue in Nazareth would rather not have included. And upon hearing this, they grab Jesus in an attempt to kill him and stone him and lynch him. But Jesus then passes right through the raging mob. The point of Jesus' stories in Luke 4 is to communicate to the people of Nazareth that the kingdom of God is more expansive than was believed. And more than that, the kingdom includes a surprising population. His words upend our notions of who's in and who's out in the eyes of God. This is a common theme in the Gospel of Luke, the the outsider, the outcast, the marginalized, the foreigner, uh, whoever you view as different, they have access to the kingdom and to the king. What drove those in the synagogue to fury was the point that their God, that Israel's God, was rescuing the wrong people. And Jesus' retelling of these miracles Jesus is upending the Jewish understanding of who are blessed and who are favored, and that caused them to react violently. One of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, she notes, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And rather than celebrating the image of God in those different than us, those that are rejected by us, we fashion God into our own image 
and his kingdom according to our preferences. Church, as we move through this series, I need for all of us to be aware of the points in our emotions and in our spirits where we are inclined to respond like those in the synagogue. Where when faced with who has access to the king and his kingdom, or we might want to say, not them, or we might say, okay, but they have to be more like me if they want to come in, or at least come in all the way. If that's where we end up, Jesus might remind us that Naaman didn't have to become Jewish to gain entrance into God's kingdom. And the widow in Sidon, she didn't have to change her status in order to gain God's embrace. But rather what opened the door to God's kingdom is their faith in the God who saves. Period. If that was the measure for Jesus, then that has to be our measure as well. Jesus leaves the synagogue and from there he begins the task of selecting or calling his disciples. One of the first disciples that Jesus comes to is Simon Peter. In Luke 5, Jesus, uh, he encounters Peter in a fishing boat on Lake Gesenaret, or also called the Sea of Galilee. They're the same body of water, just two different names. When Jesus comes to Peter, Peter's empty-handed. He's, he's, he's caught no fish. Uh, and as a Jewish fisherman in ancient Palestine, he presumably lives day to day, hand to mouth. Peter is poor. He's on the lower end of working class. Peter doesn't have economic, political, or military connections that we know of. None are indicated in the Gospels. Rather, Peter is one of the thousands of citizens being ruled by and oppressed by the Roman Empire and Rome's occupation of their land and their country. A few verses later, Jesus meets Levi, who's also called Matthew. Levi is a tax collector, and he's sitting at his tax booth collecting taxes. That's what tax collectors do. And when Jesus passes by, all of the people in Palestine, of all of the people in Palestine, tax collectors were the most hated. They'd um, taken up a position within the Roman government who was in every way the oppressor. Levi is employed in a profession that's rife with abuse and extortion. Tax collectors, they were a close-knit bunch because um, others wouldn't have associated with them. So they only had one another. When Jesus calls Levi to follow him, the, the call is costly. Peter could follow Jesus, but if things didn't work out, he could have gone back to fishing. And at one point he does. But that's not the case with Levi. For him to follow Jesus was going to cost him differently. To follow Jesus was going to cost Levi his job, his social connections, and his station in life. But Levi is undeterred. He follows Jesus and he uses his connections and wealth to throw a banquet. And Jesus is there along with a whole host of other tax collectors. The banquet draws the attention of the religious leaders who ask why Jesus is spending his time with tax collectors and sinners. And this won't be the first time that Jesus is referred to as a friend of sinners. This phrase doesn't carry the same weight with us as it did to those first hearers. But to give it a bit more clarity would be as though they were asking why Jesus is a friend of fill in the blank with whomever you believe is outside of the kingdom. A friend of terrorists or of dictators, a friend of warlords or traffickers. Jesus was a friend of those who were viewed as different or as other, who were viewed as despised or rejected or scoffed at or frowned upon because the kingdom is not filled only with those that are like you or liked by you. It's not full of our preferences, even as noble as those preferences may be. 
Jesus warned us of this in Luke 4 when he reminded us of the story of the poor widow and of the Syrian general Naaman. Jesus showed us this when he began calling his disciples, those being ground down by the empire and those conspiring with it. As we move through the rest of this series, I pray that we're amazed and enraged by who Jesus allows into his kingdom and hope that we check our emotional whiplash and measure it against the thing that Jesus says is the central and ultimate key in it all, surrendering to him, surrendering our control as the widow did, surrendering our pride and our power as Naaman did, surrendering our desperation as Peter did, surrendering our privilege and position as Levi did. For when we do that, we will find together as Jesus intended for all of us, we will find life. Let me pray for us. God, your invitation is for all of us and all means all. Your prayer is uh, your invitation is that we would be centered and surrounded by you, that we would come to you, that we would lift you up. God, I pray that you would stir that you would work in our souls, God, and that we would be a people who display the radical welcome of God, that we would be a people who see that Jesus is the one to whom we turn and the one that we come to, that he's the one who rescues and saves us. And God, whatever other trappings we look to erect to keep people out of the kingdom or to say ways you've got to change before you can come in, God, I pray that we would shed those, that we wouldn't be as those synagogue goers in Nazareth were, that we wouldn't become enraged, but that we would become inflamed with your love towards us and the world, and that our response would be hallelujah and welcome, and that we as a community might display the embrace of God, because God, that's how you embraced us. So Lord, stir in us as we explore this and move through this over the next several weeks. God, show us what we need to shed so that we in our lives personally and corporately can display the radical welcome of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.